Hi, my name is Cherie. Um, the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 133, verse 1 to 3. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that is poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brian, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 22 Regarding this next item, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out the worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions into worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. The word of the Lord. All right. Hi, my name is Cherish, and you guys are already standing for the gospel. Thanks. Um, gospel readings found in John seventeen twenty through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given, given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we? Great to be with you guys. If I haven't had the chance to, to meet you personally, my name is Brad, and uh, I'm, re- I'm really just honored and excited to, to be here with you guys. Um, if you follow Glenn on Instagram, you know exactly where he is. Um, it's an amazing city. Um, let's just say that the view from the apartment they're staying in includes the Eiffel Tower. So that may give you a little clue of where they are. Amazing opportunity to do some ministry over there. Um, they took their oldest two girls. So he, poor Glenn, right? Poor Glenn and Holly over there. Um, Glenn, Glenn and the staff here are so well loved. I thought about donning the bow tie um, to gain some, some of that love, some of that Glenn Pacquiam, you know, allegiance. But I, you and I both know only he, only he can wear it like he does and you would see me as a fraud, mere fraud. So this went with the plain shirt this morning. Um, I'm excited for a number of reasons to be here. Uh, first off, um, I told the, the team we met with earlier in prayer, I just said, God's doing something so sweet among you guys. 
that call um, New Life Downtown your home. And it's obvious. If you come here every week, sometimes you may not sense it or know it or feel it, but it's really, it's really beautiful. You guys are an incredible reflection of God's heart to the city and to one another. And so it's just awesome. Being a longtime friend of Glenn's from college, it's, it feels great to, to be here um, with you guys. Um, pardon me if, if after um, our service I don't linger very long. Um, I, have, I have four kids. My wife, Carrie, and I, we've been married for 13 years. My oldest son is playing in a championship soccer game um, at 11.15, so I may, like, bolt out really fast. Um, speaking of, if your son um, happens to be around eight, nine years old, and he's playing in a ch- championship soccer game against the Vipers today, um, you might want to prepare him to lose. So, uh, Yeah. Well, this morning we continue on um, with the series that you guys have been journeying through. I know you took a break there for a little while um, with Church in the City, but really it's the series where we've been walking through chapter by chapter um, the book of Corinthians, which Paul wrote to Corinth. And it's, it's an incredible series uh, for a number of reasons, but one, because it really asks the question, can the community of faith, can Christ followers not just survive but thrive in a major metropolitan city? That was Corinth, right? We know that it has some similarities, to, oddly enough, to Colorado Springs. Um, first off, um, there was a very, a very large athletic emphasis in the city. It was home to the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games. So you got to check that, right? Colorado Springs, um, it was also um, a place where a lot of retired military lived. Anybody know any retired military that live in Colorado Springs? You, yeah, big, big time. But moreover, um, Corinthian, Corinth was the city, it was the first city really, first large city um, that Christianity took root in. And so kind of the idea is if Christianity can survive in an environment like Corinth where there was a lot working against it, both, both overtly and subvertly, then it can perhaps survive anywhere. And so the, the issues that come up in this book, uh, 2,000 years old, right, oddly enough, are incredibly relevant to us today. Because many of us are asking the same, same question. Can, can I be a believer in a, in a culture, in a, in a world that is often hostile against it? So before we um, jump in, I, I, do, I do just want us to take a minute and to say to the Lord in our own way, God, I want to hear from you. Uh, I want to I hear your voice. I, I want you to speak to me this morning. So let's take a minute and, uh, and just ask him to do that. Father, we, uh, we know that you know each of us so intimately. It's amazing that, that you know us, yet, yet you love us all the more. That our messiness, our brokenness doesn't scare you off in any way that you reach out to us where we are, you speak over us, you speak to us individually and corporately. And Father, that's what we're after this morning. We want to be instructed by you. We want to hear from you, specifically, God, about our lives and our hearts. So we open ourselves, the best we know how, God, to the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So a week ago today, uh, I had a, a close friend approach me um, with kind of an interesting question. He said, hey, Brad, um, tonight, you, me, the incline. 
And uh, it was one of those moments where you're like, ah, I don't know. I, if you're wondering, what, what is the incline? I don't want to assume that you all know. It's, um, you've heard of the staircase to heaven. Um, this is the staircase from, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's about a mile long staircase carved out of the mountainside. Um, and you ascend 2,000 feet in that mile, just under a mile. So kind of get that in your mind if you haven't been there. Uh, some of, it's a place that some of you, you, you hear about the incline or you've been there before and you're like, bring it on, right? Let's, let's do this. Nike, just do it. Come on, we got this. Others of you are going, that's not a place that I, you, you could bribe me to go. Like, you, it doesn't matter what you offer me. Uh, no, no thank you. I have, I have no intent. Um, so I actually agreed to go to the incline with my friend. It, it was quite quite the interesting experience. I, I grew up in Littleton. I've been away since college days, and so I, I, I thought, I said, yeah, I think I've done the incline before, and my friend looked at me like, we'll see. And uh, I got there, and um, about the first five minutes, I looked at him and said, this is not what I remember. <laughs> can, 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 I go, can I go back? This is not, yeah, this is not working out. Um, oddly enough, after we uh, um, descended, I, 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 Glenn was there, and I, I caught a quick picture of him coming down the incline. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I just, it was a passing thing. I didn't get to say hi to him. Um, now that I look at that picture, I'm only 50% sure that's Glenn. But, um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's him. Anyway, um, you know, it was a crazy, crazy journey. You're going up. And, and what, I, what surprised me was there was this connection between me and the other people on the incline. You know, sort of like we're all really close to death, and so, you know, it's like we, we have this bond, like you're dying, I'm dying, isn't this great, we're dying together, you know, and, uh, you know, some people, you know, they're, you're passing them, and you're like, hey, how's it going, you know, you're feeling good about it. other people fly up beside you, but regardless, you know, you're connecting, I, I remember one family I passed, it was the husband and wife and their three kids, and she was just sitting there, like in the ashes, tears rolling down her face, and I thought, that husband convinced her to come, and now this is, does not bode well for their marriage. Um, so it, it almost had like this leveling effect, you know, it, it felt like we are the people of the incline, you know, it was just, there was this connection, uh, regardless, up and down, but what I also noted, noticed was there was that bonding side, but there was... The other side of it, that it seemed as though some people used the incline, not, not to find a level ground with everybody, but to show their level, you know, to show who they were. Like the guy who flew up beside me, and as he's passing, I said, wow, you're moving quick. And he stopped just long enough to turn to me and say, this is what 27 years on this mountain will do for you. Now get out of my way. <laughs> Whoa, I'm Sorry. Maybe he didn't say that last part, but I envisioned him thinking that last part. He thought it. He thought, this guy. So the people of the incline, right? There was, there was some that, for me, it felt very natural to feel this connection to. And then there was other people, whether I, I projected it onto them or them onto me, I thought, they're, they're the elite. They're the elite of the incline, and I have nothing in common with them. 
Their 23-minute ascent does not equal my 58-minute ascent. I didn't mean to share my time with you just then. That's not very fast, by the way, 58 minutes. Um, And oddly enough, sometimes my experience on the incline is mirrored by our experience here together as the people, as the family of God. We we feel this oneness, this connection of like, we're believers or perhaps we're here this morning and, and we're on a path we would consider ourselves a seeker. We're, we're curious about the things of faith and we find this sense of commonality and oneness with each other. I mean, we, I don't know about you, but I've already felt that this morning. But yet sometimes, as much as we like this oneness and together, we like to be in control of the people that we are close to. We like to have ultimate choice about the people that we sort of rub shoulders with and cozy up with. And sometimes in our attempt to experience oneness, we realize that there are things in our hearts that push against that. And sometimes, you know, the the barriers can can be something as petty as, as age. You know, it's like, okay, I'm a hipster, you're a baby boomer. How are we gonna actually talk, you know? I got lots of facial hair and some, you know, rimmed glasses and you're wearing pleated khakis. How can we connect? You know, as much as we'd like to think that racism is dead, sometimes for us there is this, this thing in us. It's, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Sometimes it's a socioeconomic thing, right? We just grew up perhaps in a, an affluent area, And it's harder for us when other people from other sort of socioeconomic stratospheres enter our little world and we kind of bristle. When was the last time that person showered? I'm not sure. And we have, you know, we have, we struggle with those things. And yet, and yet there is this, there's this call, there's this desire to, to run after oneness. But we know, we, we know well that, that we resist that inside. This is nothing new, right? Paul actually speaks to a situation in Corinth that is eerily similar. Maybe not on the surface, but at a heart level to the things that we experience today. Our New Testament reading was out of chapter 11, which we're on today. And Paul addresses something that's happening in the dining practices of the day. Now, to understand that scripture, you have to understand what eating meant to the Romans. I mean, the meal, the dining experience was the, was the defining ritual of Roman domestic life. It was a huge, huge deal. They had many of the homes, at least of the wealthier Romans, they had a special room called the triclinium. And it, it was a room where it, it basically translated means three couches, roughly. And they would have three tables or couches set up like this with a hollow point in the middle. And this was the room. It only had space for about 10 to 12 people. It was about 24 by 18 um, from what we know from historians and, and existing replicas. So it wasn't a large room. And then you had another room called the atrium. We use that much more often than the triclinium. Come dine in my triclinium. 
You know, the, what? What did you say? So the atrium we're, we're, we're used to, but this room was also a place. It was larger and had less furniture. It could facilitate about 30 people in this room. So essentially, what was happening in Corinth was these brand new wealthy Corinthian believers who had a home where people could dine in were inviting all the people from the church, or some of them, to come over to their house, enjoy this love feast together where they would share and, and, and be together, and then afterwards share the Lord's Supper together. So remember what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection. But in the way they were eating, the way they were partaking was actually highlighting an already existing, very stratified or layered culture. What was happening was the wealthier people, some scholars believe, could come earlier in the day because their jobs weren't, you know, so rigid. So they would come early, eat, drink, all the finest in the triclinium. Then all the, the, the blue-collar people would show up, and guess where they would eat? In a separate room in the atrium, and there may not even be food left for them. And in some cases, you know, it was just like, here's some scraps. Here's like a, the leftover wine. So you can see what was happening. Paul's like, the very meal that was meant to bring you together is actually ripping you apart. The main problem here was these wealthy Corinthian believers who, some of them perhaps weren't even thinking about, about it. It was just what they'd, what they'd normally done, right? That there was to be no change from how they would normally dine in their Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture, to how they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so when Paul finds out about this, he becomes, well, to put it mildly, a bit unhinged. He uses, we, we find strong language, right? He's like, I can't, I can't even believe it. He, I'm not pleased. I'm, he says, I'm even reluctant to believe it. He's like, this is just so far gone that, that somehow the meal that was meant to level the ground, and so we all come on equal footing, is actually highlighting the divisions Paul essentially says that pagan protocol has no place in the family of God. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, right? This is core to the gospel. This is core to who we are, right? On the cross, the life Death, resurrection of Jesus. He reconciled us, imperfect people, to him. Created a new people, the people of God. And in that same thing, he destroyed the dividing walls that separate us from each other. So the cross accomplished things on two planes. When Christ died, he not only placed us close to him, but he placed us into the family. The lost sheep was not only reconciled to the master, to the shepherd, but was also put back in the flock, was reconciled to those around him. In Jesus, our view of others is reshaped. Our view of community is reshaped. 
If the gospel works itself out in the way we see one another, there is no room whatsoever for petty, divisive perspectives in how we do anything. See, this is essentially God inviting us to experience a oneness with other people that we would not taste otherwise. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers, and I would go so far to say that God is saying now to us via the Holy Spirit that the unity we can have in Jesus is worth us being countercultural and counterintuitive. The unity that we can experience in Jesus is costly, but it's worth us paying the price. It's worth us examining ourselves and saying, God, I'm willing to be counterintuitive, do something that doesn't come natural, right? And I'm, being, I'm willing to be countercultural. I'm willing to do things that no one else around me is doing in order to be an expression of one body united under Jesus where every dividing line is erased. That's beautiful. I don't know about you, but that's me, that's, that's worth me going, God, do what you need to do in me in order for, for me to taste that, for me to experience that. Now we know, right, that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. We won't fully experience all that we have in Jesus on this earth, but we want to experience as much as we can, right? The same thing is true of our community. We won't fully experience what we have as believers together until that day when people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation gather together. But don't you, like me, want to reach for as much of that as possible? I don't, want, I don't want to end my life and go, well, you know, I just sort of dabbled in this thing called the family of God and sort of did what was comfortable. And I believe if that were the case of me, I would see a lot of missed joys, missed opportunities, missed richness that could have been mine. I wrote this down as I was sort of like wrestling with this passage this week. Our unity in Jesus is not based on any external commonalities, but rather solely on eternal shared identity. See, it's when we let everything else fall away and we go, you're my brother, you're my sister, period, that we start to taste and see. So I want to spend a few minutes wrestling with Really one simple question, and that's how do we more fully realize the unity that we have in Jesus? How do we chase after it? How do we dare to grab a little bit more of it? The first thing that I wrote down is that we need to identify and evaluate the assumptions we make about others. We need to first know what those assumptions are, then we need to evaluate them or examine them and go, is this accurate? This past week, uh, my, in, in my home, um, one, of my, one of my kids, they, they're fancying this idea of being able to cook. You know, they're like, well, I've got this, Dad. I'm like, ah, I've seen what the kitchen looks like after you run the show. I'm a little nervous. But they, they fancy this idea of cooking eggs for the family. 
And so, you know, Lucy, my daughter, is six. Never let a six-year-old cook alone. Just telling you. Just don't. Take it from me. Um, she's in there trying, and, and one of my older kids rolled in and said, Lucy, you know if you cook eggs wrong, um, they'll be full of carbon monoxide. <laughs> and I was in the middle of doing something, and I just overheard that. And, and it was weird. Like, and I'm like sitting there, I'm like, Really? You know, like, did I miss, like, maybe I've been feeding my family carbon monoxide all these years. I didn't even know it. What is it? You know, in your mind, you know it's wrong, but it, like, it kind of just gets implanted in there. Um, so much so that every time since I've made eggs, I've thought about that, like, and I've wondered, like, what's going on? The, the only thing I can think of is, is when it says, you know, when you look online, like, how do you know if carbon monoxide is in your room? It smells like rotten eggs. I don't know if that's what it was. But I think that's that same thing that happened to me when my son said that. You know, he's like, that doesn't make sense. When we hear it about other people, oh, those people are like this. We, we might go, really? Now, I don't know too many of those people, but maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. And we have these these. these these lenses, these filters that drop into our mind. And then if we're not careful, when we're together in the family of God, we're like, oh, that must be one of those people. I can easily identify them, and I want nothing to do with them. Right? I, I was uh, driving with an extended family member recently, and they just said to me something that was so peculiar. They said, you know, I, um, I've been observing this type of person and, and what they said afterwards was, was really strange. They said, and they're actually really hardworking people. And I was like, whoa. And what, it made, what, it, what it exposed in him was that for years he always thought that this kind of person didn't work very hard. And I don't know if, he, if this person realized what, you know, how, what, what it exposed in them when they said that. But I was like, Wow. It's interesting. I wonder how long he had carried that lens. And I wonder if it had actually separated him from people around them that could have been really amazing. See, at the bottom line, when, when we have unevaluated assumptions about people in our life, based on age, based on race, based on the amount of money in their bank account, whatever, we feel off the hook in how... In how we can, we can treat them. In other words, we don't have to love them. We don't have to connect with them. We don't have to be kind to them because after all, they're that kind of person. I'm not responsible for how I treat them because they are them and I am me. And there is a line here. So the first thing I think that, that we have to do is just stop and say, God, you know, sometimes we don't even know, but God, will you, will you show me? It's a gutsy question. Will you show me if there's any assumptions in me about other people that would keep me, especially within the family of God, from reaching across the aisle and saying, hey, you're my brother, hey, you're my sister. If you hesitate, if you and I hesitate, there's probably something there. If you go, "Mm, I don't know. I'd rather not. Thank you, though. We find this interesting scripture in the book of Acts, chapter 10, starting in verse 27. While walking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. This is the home of Cornelius, who who was a Gentile, right? Jews and Gentiles, 
ye oil and water for the most part, right? He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's interesting to me that Peter had this very strong cultural and social dynamic that kept him isolated from the Gentiles. But yet when God started to work into his life, right? Peter here, he's a newer believer. He hasn't, he hasn't known Jesus that long. As God worked, how suddenly he's like, but God has instructed me. In other words, it was counterintuitive and countercultural for him to go, I'm in the home of a Gentile and I'm here to minister to them. This doesn't feel good. This feels a little strange. So much so that I'm going to qualify being there with sort of like, God's helping me be here because I don't really like you people. How's that for an introduction, right? I previously thought all of you were wicked, dirty people, but now God's helping me. You'd be like, hmm, do we want to listen to this Peter guy? But what was so great, right? We know if you read the rest of chapter 10 that God does amazing things that day. Amazing things in the home of Cornelius. Because someone was like, assumption. Mm, God's helping me here, right? The second thing, how do we more fully realize the unity we have in Jesus? The second thing is this. We make a deliberate choice to spend time on the other side of the tracks. Do I have any uh, Friday Night Lights watchers in the room? You know that series about football in Texas? Yeah, there's like a whole roll of guys in the back. You're like, yeah, right here. I actually played linebacker for that show. Um, but you know that, it, I, I don't know if I want to, re- spoiler alert, right? They'll just, I, I won't spoil the show if you're in the middle, maybe some of you are in the middle of watching, it's like, leave, he's going to spoil the whole show for you. But there was really a delineating marker in Dillon, Texas. It really was. It was clear. It was like, they don't really happen. They don't really go over there. But one of the things I love about that show was to see the redemption that happens when this happens. There's actually this newfound richness that happens when we cross over the proverbial tracks in our life. You know, for me, I I, I haven't really dealt with this in a long time. For me, there was always sort of this resistance to the middle-aged man. When I was in my 20s, I I think it was sort of like I was enjoying the independence of being out out from under my father's home, as great of a home as it was, and it, so the, the middle-aged man for me represented sort of like that authority figure of like, I call the shots here. And I was like, I, no one's calling the shots but me, you know? I'm 20 and footloose and fancy free. Like, and so there was this resistance. And I think about during my 20s, like what I missed out on, you know, like moments like this morning, case in point. You guys, most of you know Mr. Pacquiam. Um, he's slightly older than me, maybe five years, five years. Okay. <laughs> Here we are, he's over there, and he's putting his arm around me, he's praying over me. I mean, there's a lot externally that could separate me from Mr. Pacquiam, right? He's Malaysian. I'm white boy, American white boy, right? (laughs) Different culture, he grew up in a different culture. A long ways away 
And yet I feel so connected to him. I feel so, I, I view him as like one of my spiritual fathers. And he prays over me and there's just this sense of like, oh, wow. That could be, it's not, but it could be, for some of us, a little bit of a trip on the other side of the tracks. It's very comfortable for me. But for some of us, sometimes the tracks simply are age or they're a cultural thing or they're, they're a race thing or they're a gender thing or I don't know what it is for you. What are the tracks in your life that you shudder to think of crossing them? And I would argue this. There is something that you need, that I need, that can only be found on the other side of the tracks. In the book of James, James tells us, he says, that he's chosen the poor to be rich in the things of God. Sometimes in in suburbia America, we can get isolated, and the times when I've pushed over that wealth status barrier and engaged with people that have far less than I do, I get far more from them than they ever, than than I ever give to them. I was on, way on the other side of the tracks. And in that moment, God met me. God ministered to me. I needed what they had. I needed their perspective, their mindset, the other side of the tracks. Luke 8, 26 is a simple verse, and it just simply says that they, Jesus and his disciples sailed across to the other side of the Lake of Galilee into a Gentile region, into a place that Jews just didn't go. But I love that when Jesus is in the boat, the boat goes where the boat normally wouldn't go. Tracking me? When Jesus is in your boat you're willing to sail to the other side of the lake to do what he's called you to do, to be what he's called you to be. So think through, what are the tracks in your life? The third thing is this. If we're we're fully realize the unity we have in Jesus, we look for opportunities to talk openly about our brokenness. We look for opportunities to talk openly about our brokenness. I spent the last eight years before moving here serving at Saddleback Church, and um, it's a well-known church. Probably most of you have heard it. It's where Rick Warren is the pastor, and it was an incredible experience. But I have to tell you that the things that really shaped me in that place were not any of the the size of the church or the the high-profile guests that would come, but it was interactions that I had with many of the leaders there, in particular Rick's wife, Kay. She had a way of opening up her life in such a way that destroyed walls of separation between people. Because I don't know about about you and I, but when I'm struggling to follow Jesus and I feel broken and I feel like I'm giving in to temptation, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one. And I look around a room of believers and I go, man, no one else is here struggling with what I'm struggling with. In the reality, nothing could be further than the truth. We are fellow travelers on this road. And we all struggle. We all bear the weights. We all 
reflect the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our own hearts that God is fully restoring. When we are open in appropriate ways with each other, it is so bonding. And I'll never forget one time my wife and I were sitting with Kay and she was giving us advice about some things that were going on in, her li- in, in our lives. And she said, she said, guys, I just want to counsel you. Be open. Be open with them. Talk to them about what's really going on. You don't have to share all the nitty-gritty details. But be vulnerable. And she was talking to me about a public setting that I was getting ready to address. It was hard for me. The beauty that came out of that... The com- Listen, if you and I learn to be appropriately open about our brokenness, we will have conversations with people that we would have never had otherwise. You know, I, I just lost my mom to, to cancer. She gained eternity with Jesus, thank the Lord. But as I've been open with others about my grief process, I don't want to talk about it sometimes, you know? But when I... Say, I'm really hurting, or I really feel depressed. I end up engaging the person across the table from me in a totally different way. When was the last time you really shared something deeply personal with someone else and let them in? Say, man, I'm, I'm so depressed. I'm worried about me. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with, with this whole eating thing, or... Man, I'm just so angry all the time and I don't know why. God invites us to taste that, right? There's a relief that comes, a healing that comes when we're open. The last thing is this. We more fully realize the unity we have in Jesus when we pray for the grace to forgive. Colossians 3, 11 through 13, amazing scripture. says this. Hear... Speaking of the kingdom of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Sicinthian, I don't think I pronounced that right, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think this is the, I put this last for a reason because I think for most of us, this is probably the toughest wall that can separate us from other people, is this idea of when we are offended. Right? Proverbs speaks to this, right? It says there's perhaps no one more resistant than an offended brother, you know? It's a big deal. First, we talked about our mind, right? We evaluate the assumptions in our mind. We cross the tracks. That's about our feet, right? We make a movement. When we talked about our brokenness and sharing it, that's our mouth. And lastly, this idea of forgiveness, this is an issue of the heart. I love what I read in a commentary this week. The author wrote this, Ironically, the realization that we are not worthy is the very position from which Christ welcomes us to the table. 
Some have wrongly concluded that what Paul says in chapter 11 when he says, do not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, means that we have to somehow clean ourselves up before we come to the table. But notice he says, they partake in an unworthy manner. He's not pointing out you are unworthy, right? Because the realization that you and I don't deserve this is the very thing that enables us to come to this. And so I point that out, meaning when we start to realize, I don't deserve this, we can look at the person who's offended us and say, they don't deserve my forgiveness that comes out of us. And it's like, well, maybe not. That we've been given a gift that we don't deserve. Therefore, we are free to pass that gift along in saying, God, I forgive. And there's a reason that this last point says pray for the grace, right? Because forgiveness does not come natural. Talk about counterintuitive. I remember early on in ministry, this influential person sat across the table from me and they said, Brad, I fully believe that you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> it was the last thing that I needed to hear. And it was in some ways true. But it, it wounded me so deeply. And every time I met someone that was the same name as this person, I would be like, nah. <laughs> you know, I'd have this visceral reaction like, I, I want to throw a brick through the window of their home. And it was sort of that daily decision when it would come up further for a while. I was like, God, help me just to let go of that. Help me just to give me the grace. This morning as we come to the table, We remember that this is reconciliation with God, but this is reconciliation with each other. Jesus made that possible. The only question is, are we willing to be countercultural, counterintuitive, to reach for more of it?